I'd, I'd like for you to turn to a Second Corinthians in your Bible to chapter four. Second Corinthians chapter four. Hope you've had a good day, and uh, you are doing well tonight. Looking forward, maybe to not to being off work tomorrow. Maybe you're getting together with family and to commemorate Memorial Day. Storm's going to be coming up somewhere, right? I didn't check the weather track this afternoon. Maybe it's just going to be some little bit of rain and wind for us, I guess. Uh, but maybe it won't ruin your plans uh, tomorrow afternoon. Do you know what I mean when I use the expression prosperity gospel? Um, it's name it and claim it, health and wealth. You know that sound familiar to you? You've probably heard some of those expressions before. Prosperity gospel, name it and claim it, health and wealth. Uh, this is a this is kind of fascinating thing that has, it's kind of a, an American thing. It's not limited to America, but it's an expression of a kind of Christian faith that is, it's attracted tons of people. There, there are churches that fill former stadiums people come every Sunday to worship and and it's not I mean it's just it's just grown tremendously if I mentioned some of the names I know you'd know some of the names but essentially this kind of kind of expression of Christianity is one that says you know God wants you to be rich and he wants you to be happy and he wants you to be successful and he wants you to be healthy healthy wealthy and wise he, you know he wants he wants everything to be good for you so name it and claim it you need to find the promises in the Bible find a promise about whatever, and you name it and claim it, and God, will, God is sort of in your debt. He will, he will respond if you do certain things, and you'll, you'll, um, you'll get what you want. Uh, sometimes it's closely aligned with some televangelism, that if you send us $100, God will give you $1,000 by the end of the week, you know, that sort of thing. So you invest in us, you, pl you plant a seed, and God's going to bring about a tree. It's, it's that sort of thing. In fact, a, a quotation from one of their adherents, one of their pretty popular guys, is this. I'm not taking this out of context. This is in the context of his entire ministry. But he writes this, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he's laid out for us. That's in quote, short quotation, but it's uh, pretty, pretty representative of, of that kind of thinking. And, 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 and a lot of people are being persuaded by this. I was teaching a, a class, a college class, uh, a couple years ago, not, I mean, not, not in church setting, but um, I asked... People in the class, to it was, a, it was a class where I wanted them to go and listen to a speech, uh, whatever speech they wanted to, and to kind of critique it. And so I asked them to find some speech, a sermon, public address, whatever. And somehow we got on a discussion after that about, uh, I think a lot of them picked sermons. And, and so I, who's, who's your fa favorite preacher? What's your favorite sort of, you know, because uh, a lot of them had chosen sermons to critique. Anyway, of the class, about half of them picked prosperity gospel preachers who are on TV, have written lots of books, and they preach this kind of gospel. And, and I use that word, God. I don't think it is the gospel. I don't, I don't think it's the gospel at all. And, and I'll talk about that a little bit tonight as we look at this text. But about half of them chose, uh, there were, there were two, two names that prominently were displayed on this list. And, and those two names are associated with this kind of thinking that you, God wants you to be wealthy, and he wants you to be healthy, and he wants things to go your way. 
Now, I don't know if you have a problem with that kind of thinking or not. I, I hope you do have a problem with, with this kind of version of it because I don't think the Bible teaches that is the gospel. Now, let me mention another kind of cultural phenomenon that's sort of related to this. And I'm, I do this sometimes. I, I, like to, I like to know of famous people who subscribe to the Christian faith. Now, I, I'm not endorsing necessarily their version of the Christian faith, only that it's intriguing to me, and maybe to you as well, when you've got some famous athlete or some famous you know, movie star or somebody famous for something else, and they are trying to live the Christian life. You know, there's that website called, you may have seen a bumper sticker, I am second. I am second, like not first, second. So they've got a website, I am second.com, I think is what it is. And I got on there, I don't know, it's been years ago, I guess. But uh, some of the people who are on there, who they give a little, some sort of a little, uh, little speech about, you know, they were living this kind of life and then they, they changed, they became Christians or whatever, and this is, this is how God has changed their lives. It's pretty interesting to do. Uh, people like Tim Tebow are on there. Um, I can't, Stephen Baldwin, I think that's Alec Baldwin's brother. He's, he's one of them. Um, Jason Witten, the tight end for the um, world's best team, the Dallas Cowboys. Um, long time ago. Now, um, people, people like that, you know, so, so famous people. And, and this afternoon, in fact, I, I Googled, you know, like famous people who are, who are Christians. And, and, and the names on that list are interesting. It's just intriguing. You know, people like Denzel Washington, who's an incredible actor, you know, apparently... I have a hard time squaring up some of the movies he's been in with, you know, what I read elsewhere that his faith is very serious, you know, very important to him. Mel Gibson, you, you mean Stephen Colbert, uh, Russell Wilson, Bubba Watson. I mean, names go on and on and on. These, these people who are athletes or superstars or whatever who subscribe to the Christian faith. And I'm, I've wondered, I don't have an answer to this part, but I've wondered why is it that we like to find people like that who profess Christianity. What, what, what is it about that? What, I draw a little bit of, um, I don't know, satisfaction or, um, I like that. I, I like when I see someone who is, who is, who is wealthy and has done really well and everybody knows them. I, I like to know that they profess the Christian faith. I don't know, it's some sort of camaraderie there, but why is that? Why do we like seeing someone like that who's, who's accomplished something in the eyes of the world that is recognized as being big and we also want to know that they're profess the Christian faith. Maybe it's just, maybe it validates us in some way. I don't know what it is. I don't know what, psychologically speaking, it factors into this. Now, so those, those two things, prosperity gospel, and then this idea of the, the wealthy people who profess Christianity. Just keep that sort of in mind. I'll refer back to that a little bit. But I want to say this before we read our text tonight. Christianity is not true, you know this, but I want to say it anyway, Christianity is not true based on how successful its adherents are in the eyes of the world. That has absolutely nothing to do with the validity or the invalidity of what we profess. Even though we may from some sort of human psychological perspective, be drawn to this idea of, oh man, the glitz and the glamour and the wealth and the, the fame and stardom and somehow that validates Christianity in our minds. We've probably bought into some pseudo 
pseudo version of Christianity in our minds at least in that moment. I want to show you what, what Paul writes here. 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to read about six verses, starting in verse 7, starting, no, verse 5, going through verse 12. Read about eight verses. And starting right in the middle of a paragraph, which probably isn't the best way to go about it, but um, this, is a, this is a kind of a, uh, one thought that he expresses here. So let's read it. 2 Corinthians 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. All right, so you get this little paragraph from Paul where he's talking about how God's glory is seen, how God's strength is seen. And a little bit of context here, 2 Corinthians is very much of an apologetic letter. Paul is defending his apostleship. Because there were people at Corinth, there's a big difference between this letter and the one we call 1 Corinthians, because apparently some stuff had happened and Paul is, is responding to some allegations against him. There were people who were saying, Paul's not a real apostle, you know, look at him, he's not that impressive physically, he's not a good speaker, he's not, he's not very successful in the eyes of the world, he doesn't have any money. His life, to be honest, this is what the opponents apparently were saying, I mean, quite honestly, Paul's not doing very well. You know, he's got a pretty rough life. I mean, he's, he's always getting beaten up and people are always treating him bad. Does that sound like an apostle to you? This is what they were saying. He's, this, this guy can't be a real apostle because if he was a real apostle, things would be going better for him, you know? So Paul, in this letter, he responds to them. And he, in, this, in this little section here, he's, he's talking about, well, maybe you've got a Maybe you've got a wrong idea of what it means to be a Christian. Maybe, maybe these guys who are making these accusations don't really know what it means to be a Christian and they don't really know where you see the work of Christ. You know? That's, that seems to be what Paul is saying. So a couple of expressions here. One of them is in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. There's a Christian music group, I think, that has that name. Jars of clay. Uh, your Bible might have the... Words, earthen vessels. I think that's the way the King James puts it, isn't it? The earthen vessels idea. So what Paul's talking about here are these pieces of pottery that were used for eating and drinking. Now, they were not worth much of anything. They were cheap. They were used for common tasks. They were used for, you know, just daily kind of thing. They weren't worth much of anything. If you broke one of them, you would not pick it up and get some, whatever the first century equivalent of super glue was, you would not get some glue and try to put it back together. What you would do is you would take, maybe you'd save those pieces and you'd give them to the potter and they would then be reused to form another piece of very inexpensive, uh, you know, a container or whatever. 
So that's what a jar of clay was, made out of clay. It was, uh, you know, potter made the clay. This is just cheap stuff. That's the point of it. Now, one commentary said there are three things here that are implied in this. And this is important. We'll go back to our original idea in a minute. But, but, but Paul says, we have this treasure. Now, to figure out what the treasure is, I think you go back to the previous verse where he says, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the treasure. You might say it like this. The treasure is the gospel of Christ. The treasure is what we preach. The treasure is that salvation is found in Christ. So that's the treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Who are the jars of clay? What are the jars of clay? Paul's saying we are the jars of clay. Talking about himself, talking about those who presented the gospel, the apostles and maybe others. We have this treasure, this Man, this, this good news, the gospel about Jesus, we had that, but God chose to put it in these worthless vessels, human bodies, the apostles themselves. So that commentator I mentioned a second ago, he says there are three things that are implied here. Number one, weakness. This, this piece of pottery was not strong at all. You drop it, it broke. Didn't have any real substance to it. It was very fra fragile, you know, it was just... so. The idea of weakness. Number two, the idea of lowliness. It wasn't worth anything. Number three, the idea of expendability. Uh, you broke it, you didn't fix it. Very expendable. Just get another one. So he says those, those are the three implications of the jars of clay idea. That is that Paul and the other apostles who were preaching the gospel, they weren't like those jars of clay. They were, they were weak. They were lowly. They weren't that impressive. Right? Paul, Paul was... Paul was well-educated, but Paul himself didn't... He walked into the room, you, you weren't blown away by his magnetism, by his presence, like you might be some people. Paul's not that impressive of a guy. Apparently wasn't physically impressive. Apparently his speaking ability wasn't that good. Pretty lowly. We know Peter, James, and John were fishermen. We know Matthew was a tax collector. We know Simon was a zealot. Uh, we don't know that much about the others, but we know this... When people looked at them, they thought, these guys aren't really that impressive. They don't, they don't look like much. Then number three, expendable. Expendable. The, the success of the gospel was not bound up in the success of Paul or Peter or James or John. God can do what God's going to do through somebody else. Now, this, Paul doesn't mean this to, me, to, to say God doesn't value us. This isn't about what God, how God values us. Paul's just saying the, 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 the strength, the power, this is in God, not in, not in us. Not in us. It's in the, the, the treasure, the gospel. The, the treasure's there, not in who we are, how good we look, how successful we are, how much money we've got, how, good, how, how well our lives are going. It's not about that. We're just jars of clay. We are weak, we are lowly, and we are expendable. God will raise up somebody else. God will raise up somebody else. If, if something happens to us, God's going to raise up someone else. So that's that first expression, pretty, pretty important one. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Now look at this, verse 7. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This, this is an important thing. I want you to get this, because I think this is what Paul is saying. The power of the gospel is not seen in spite of our weakness, but rather through our weakness. God doesn't do big things in spite of our 
Weakness, lowliness, and expendability. He does great things through our weakness and lowliness and expendability. There are two different statements there. He doesn't just do it in spite of us. He does it because of us. He does it through us. In fact, he seizes these very attributes of lowliness, weakness, and expendability. He uses those attributes as vehicles through which to communicate the beauty of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. So if you and I need the gospel to be validated by somebody on TV who's good-looking and wealthy and successful, if we need the gospel to be validated by that, by that we're not looking at the gospel rightly. The gospel's not validated by that. That doesn't mean there's not some measure of satisfaction in seeing someone who's trying to live Christ in a, a difficult environment like, you know, like the world of professional athletics or you know, movie superstardom or whatever. But that doesn't validate it. Paul seems to be saying that the gospel's truth is validated, not in success, but in failure from the worldly perspective, from the human perspective, that that, that is where you see the power of the gospel. Now, read on with me. He says, verses 8 and 9, nobody would deny this. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. Do you see what he's saying? The power of the gospel is seen not in what he does with the successful people of the world, not primarily in that, but how God values and how God suffers with and how God protects those who are on the down and out, those who are struggling. His power is seen in weakness. And so when you've got people like Paul who have been persecuted, but God protected them, God stood with them. When you've got people like Paul who are afflicted, but you cannot crush them, I wonder if maybe, you think about what this means to us. I wonder if maybe people see the gospel more clearly when you and I are going through hard times than they do when we're going through good times. Because what they see in us is they see, wow, she's really going through a hard time right now. But look at what something's going on. Some, she's handling that differently than other people I know of. I mean, she got that diagnosis, that, that medical diagnosis, and it didn't devastate her like it did this person over here. You know, he lost his job. He'd been, been in that job for, for, for 30 years, and he lost that job. And you know what? It didn't just completely, it didn't just completely destroy him. He handled that differently. What was it about it? And maybe, I think that's what Paul is saying. We're afflicted, but not devastated. Persecuted, but we're not crushed. We deal with stuff that the world deals with, but what, but what do you see? You see something different about the way it works. So Paul seems to be saying, you, you see the gospel, not in the, the, the health and wealth thing, that name it and claim it. Man, I'm going to be, if you're truly living faithfully, then God's going to make you uh, wealthy. I don't see that in the Bible, not, not anywhere. We run into this, by the way, and maybe our other mission teams do also. We run into this some in Tanzania with people there who are struggling financially. And there is, we've, we've been asked specifically, why 
If we're Christians, why aren't we wealthy like you are? Like you Americans, is what they're saying. I don't know where that idea came from. I don't know if it came from America, if it came from the health and wealth gospel, if they, if they, they, they read it on, I don't know where, where it came from, but this kind of thinking is dangerous because God has never, through Christ, God, God does not connect faithfulness to the gospel with prosperity or an easy life. Never, never does. Now, go on in our, in our text just, just for a minute. Uh, 10, verse 10, he says, always caring. This is I talked this morning about how the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ permeates our lives as Christians. I mean, it affects so many things. So think about that as we read these last three verses of our paragraph. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul is using, Paul always does this. You'd be surprised how often he does it. He uses the death, burial, and resurrection to inform every aspect of his faith, of his life. And so here he's saying, just as Jesus died and was raised, God does that for me every day. Uh, God, God is continually doing that in the lives of Christians. And what he means by that is that we, he's not saying he literally dies every day and God literally raises him from the grave every day. But his life is one of perpetual struggle. And yet through the struggle, you see the glory of God. That's the idea. The struggle of death is followed by the glory of resurrection. So the principle is, for Paul, the struggle of persecution, the struggle of a difficult life, is followed by the glory of seeing God help us persevere through that. And so that idea of struggle followed by glory is something you see in Paul's daily life as he deals with persecutors, as he deals with you know, the, the travails of, uh, of being an apostle. And so in us, you think about this, in us, where do people see the gospel? This is an apologetic statement here. He's talking about where, where do people see the gospel. Maybe they see it best. I already said this, but we really need to get this idea. People see the gospel perhaps most clearly when they see our daily dying and being resurrected. Dying and being resurrected. Dying and being resurrected. Again, not a literal death, but a, but a constant dealing with the ups and downs of life and yet never giving in of staying there, of being, living with a resurrected perspective. Do you see what I'm saying? You, th you see what, how, how Paul is expressing this? So it's seen, not in the, you know, the, uh, the, the Tim Tebow's or the Denzel Washington's or whatever the, the public, you know, superstar kind of face of, of the Christian faith might be. Not in that. Maybe it's in the young Christian who nobody knows outside of this a small circle of people who's facing health problems daily but doesn't let them crush her. Or a man who is laboring in a dead-end job who's in a job that nowhere meets his qualifications perhaps but nonetheless, he approaches that job with a spirit of optimism. He's constantly being resurrected again and again. I mean, the scenarios, I guess, are endless. But maybe the gospel is seen more clearly in that woman, that man, this older lady, this older couple, this 
Christian who's just living it on a day-to-day basis. Life is hard. Life may be hard financially. It may be hard relationally. It may be hard uh, within within your family. It may be hard physically. But God's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is being lived out daily as you deal with those daily dyings. In fact, Paul, the word he uses here, the Greek word he uses here is one that indicates a dying. He doesn't talk about death as much as he does a dying. We're constantly dying. That is, we're struggling. We're struggling, and yet we're constantly being resurrected. We're constantly being revived. God is constantly working with us. So back to where we started tonight, you know, the health and wealth idea. Do we need that? Do you need that? Do you need your life to be, um, do, you, do you need your life to, to be better than it is in order for you to be faithful to Christ? I hope you don't. That's not, that's not gospel. That's not the story here. That's not what we read. In fact, we read in scripture about the life of Jesus whose life comes to us in death and resurrection. And Paul seizes that and uses it metaphorically to talk about this constant thing that we're going through as Christians. So God's gospel is seen, God's power is seen in our weakness because God can do something not just even through us, but he does it, he does it in a powerful way through us, not in spite of our weaknesses. God's glory and power are seen in those very weaknesses. That's the beauty of the Christian life. And God's working in you. Maybe that gives you some hope and some strength to deal with whatever you're dealing with. That It doesn't mean God's abandoned you. In fact, maybe, I know this is easy to say and, and, and much more difficult to practice, so I recognize, that, I recognize that idea. But maybe God allows us to go through things so that his glory may be seen, so that people might in our weakness perceive what God is doing. I think that's a Bible way of looking at the, at the gospel. If you're not a Christian tonight, uh, one of the reasons we're here is to, to give you an opportunity to confess Jesus Christ. If you believe in him with all of your heart and you're ready to turn your heart and life over to him, to, to put him on, put Jesus on in baptism. And again, that goes back to the death, burial, and resurrection. You die to self, you're buried in water, you're resurrected uh, to live a new kind of life with, with the strength of God within you. And if you're ready to become a Christian tonight, we will... Uh, gladly baptize you into him. Maybe you need to come back to him tonight because your life has been outside of him and outside of his will lately. Let's stand and sing this song. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come.